Welcome to Hair of the Werewolf. I'm Chase, and I'm here with my co-host, Lily. Hey, guys. And we are a supernatural horror podcast where we tell each other stories that are allegedly true and often have a few drinks along the way to make it even more fun. Oh, yeah. And we encourage you to at least join us, be it coffee or beer or whatever floats your boat. <laughs> well, what I'm floating on right now is, um, I think it's it's a Malbec? I think that's the one I grabbed. I thought it was a Cabernet Sauvignon. That is obviously probably true. And it's what it's it's a local winery, right? Yeah, so it's Sheehan Winery. I went there a couple of times with some friends. I and haven't been there yet, but I hear it's amazing. Yeah, well, just hanging out there is amazing. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's what I'm drinking. We have a friend so getting good. married there soon, so I will be able to Woo-hoo! see it, which I'm pretty excited yeah. about. So. <laughs> You'll finally get to meet some of the people that I think they're starting to think I made you up at some point. Like, they... There's some people that I've known for years, and they've never met you. Well, so it's just like a different friend group, I guess. It's just it worked out that way. I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a pretty awesome imaginary husband. <laughs> I do a really good impression of you, I suppose. <laughs> and I'm super excited today because I am drinking a Guinness. Now, it's not a normal Guinness. It's a non-alcoholic Guinness. I found it at the store the other day, and it looks exactly like regular Guinness, except it has a little bit of like a blue line and the writing saying non-alcoholic, but otherwise it looks just like a Guinness. So don't confuse it with other non-alcoholic beers, even ones made and owned by Guinness. This is Guinness. And we, on St. Patty's Day, we put them side by side with a real can of Guinness in this one so we could taste both and see how close it is. And I gotta say, I was blown away by how close to the original this tasted. Yeah, even I have to say, like, I could not, I could barely tell the difference. Now, the regular Guinness is a little more bitter. And it has a cleaner finish. Yeah. So the the non-alcohol one is slightly less bitter, and the finish is just a little bit, falls a little bit flat. That said, I'm pretty sure, especially if I was, like, a beer or two in, and someone handed me this, I would just be like, oh, it's a Guinness, and I really... I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Not after, like, a couple of drinks. Absolutely not. And I, and I want you guys to believe my opinion, because for those of you that don't know me, Guinness is the beer that turned me <laughs> from a beer hater into a beer lover when I was, like, 19 in college. You know, oh, by the way, wait until you're 21 <laughs> to drink. I mean, 21. <laughs> yeah. So I've been drinking it for getting close to 20 years. I love Guinness. I've had it regularly. And we've, you and me have even been to the Guinness Brewery in Dublin and drank a fresh pint on their, like, balcony bar and everything like that. Yeah. So I really like Guinness. So for me to say this non-alcoholic Guinness is shockingly good, I totally mean it. Even if you're just trying to hang. That's a good beer to have in between so you don't, like, get too drunk or something, you know? The hydrator. It's perfect. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, we hope you guys had a good St. Paddy's Day, and that's assuming you do anything at all. And if not, I still hope it was a good day for you. So, yeah. um, Is there any other updates that I'm trying to think of that I can't at this moment? No, we still haven't seen the new Scream movie. But I'm starting to see ads that it's coming to streaming service, but I think it's coming to (laughs) Paramount Plus, which uh, it will be a cold day in hell before I buy that service. Right. Uh, we're just going to have to buy it through Amazon streaming, which is fine. Everyone told us it's good, so. Yeah, I, I'm i pretty upset that we haven't seen it, but also I understand, and I'm basically being pretty forgiving of myself of why we haven't gone to see it. Um, it's just been insane. But anyway, okay. So I guess since we have not seen the movie or done anything particularly interesting, I suppose we can get back into our stories. And yours looks sizable, so hit Yeah, me. it's not... 
I don't know. I thought I had a lot of fun doing this one because at first I was having a hard time finding a story, um, not for lack of inspiration. Um, if anything, there were too many options because what I wanted to focus on is make it St. Patty's Day appropriate. And, you know, I was like, okay, let's do something haunted pubs or some sort of like hotel that's in Dublin or whatnot. And even though there is no short of hauntings in Dublin, it didn't feel St. Patty's day E, if that makes sense. It was like, you know, it, there was nothing relating to it. It just happens to be in Ireland, which is fine. But that's not what I was looking for. I'm still cool with any any story that has anything to do with Ireland. That sounds fine. <laughs> no, I know. But then I was or like... Or drinking or pubs. You know, it's been a while since I've done a mythical creature. Ooh. And... Oh, wait, wait. <laughs> Are you doing the leprechaun? I'm doing the legend of the leprechaun. The legend that inspired the movie that shot Jennifer Aniston to fame? <laughs> that that very movie that you're describing, yeah. If it weren't for that movie, no one would know who she was. I mean, I don't know her in anything else, so <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what we're doing. Um, so, I, you know, when I went into it, I'm like, I think I know a lot about it, but, you know, who knows? And I did not know because I was pleasantly surprised, and I learned uh, quite a bit myself. So, All right. here we go. And... I just want to thank PBS and their channel Storied (laughs) (laughs) for helping me uh, get a lot of the information and just guidance so that I can look up other other things I found interesting. PBS, once again, since PBS is the greatest. I know. Since I was a kid, you've always been there for me. It deserves support. I agree. We're not doing a pleasure job on this show. (laughs) We're not. (laughs) It will not happen. Oh my god! But if if I ever did, I would be wearing a very nice suit. I'll just let you know. (laughs) So the uh, so let's kind of ease into it and talk about the term leprechaun. It comes from Old Irish, from the term leprechaun or leprechaun. But in reality, there's like 15 different variations, as mm. I found out. Um, so I can sit here and try to pronounce all of them so we can all have a good laugh. But I think I'm just going to move on. <laughs> there's one thing you and me are both good at. It's pronunciation <laughs> of foreign words. Yes. <laughs> I could barely read them when they were on my computer screen, so... There's no way I'm going to say them. (laughs) Now, they're often classified as being, you know, a fairy, but with a few other distinctive characteristics that doesn't fully make them a fairy. Like one of them is that they love living alone. And it's very, very rare to come across two leprechauns or find them socializing with other fairies. Okay. These creatures have also been described as evil spirits and (laughs) degenerate fairies. That is neither completely good or completely evil. Kind of in in between. And it makes sense because when we were kids, we were given the uh, super child version, mostly inspired by the cereal Mm -hmm. (laughs) of this like happy little guy. And he was like, oh, yeah, and I'm off on my own. But as you got older, everything that we started getting exposed to was leprechauns are not a pleasant thing in general. No, they're not... Yeah, they're not really meant to be your friend. Yeah. That's basically... They don't want to be near you. Not really. Not really. And you don't want to be near them. Now, the leprechaun is often wearing strange attire. Mm -hmm. Very old kind of world. And their height ranges from a couple of inches to a couple of feet. They're always depicted as being a shoemaker. This explains why some in some of their descriptions, they're often wearing a leather apron. Their clothing, hmm. yeah, so that's pretty cool. And then also, it does vary their their attire depending on the region and you know, throughout time. It makes me wonder if 
in the, the the culture that was develop developing this you know lore around the leprechaun if they had negative feelings towards cobblers you know oh because yeah they're like they just made this possibly I, nefarious creature a cobbler. Well, see, I don't know. I, I kind of see where you're coming from based on what I've just told you. But I don't... It's actually the fact that they're shoemakers is one of the only good things about them. That you're kind of like... <laughs> that you're kind of cool with. You're okay, like, oh, okay. sweet. He makes like pretty sweet shoes, you know, despite him being weird. <laughs> Leprechaun brand kicks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so like I said, uh, depending on the region and the time frame in which this story was being told, their clothing can vary. Uh, sometimes they're seen in red, uh, their buckles on their shoes, and whenever they're wearing a hat, it sometimes signifies whether or not they have powers, and a lot of those powers involve them being able to disappear mm. at any moment or travel long distances. Other interpretations of him is wearing a Elizabethan rough collar, which I... I found out what you mean that's the called. the ruffle things? Yeah, so they're called rough collars. And uh, frilly lace coming out of the wrist. So they seem very, like, Shakespearean-ish. Dainty. Yeah, and dainty. So um, on the west coast of Ireland, he is often portrayed wearing an overcoat for protection of harsh weather. So again, this is all dependent on region. It isn't until we get into uh, Leinster that these little guys were wearing their green suits, wide-brimmed hats, belt buckles, and boots. And uh, more or less the leprechaun that we kind of know a little the more cliche. yeah yeah yeah. man thinking about them with the frilly collars and everything that's just weird <laughs> yes that's the one i didn't expect to learn i was like really but, but i guess you know at the time maybe but if i'm being fair whenever you see someone in that frilly collar you're like you know what that's just not right yeah he's no nobles man what what are you doing i might be biased i have a short neck and so <laughs> <laughs> when anything's wrapped around my neck i'm like <laughs> so i see those and i just feel like i'm choking just to watch other people i also think that has to do with your claustrophobia though because i i think it kind of goes hand in hand this this idea of being suffocated okay okay that's a theory that i just made up but who not knows? everything is related to my claustrophobia <laughs> lily <laughs> this i'm going to make it my mission that it is <laughs> just kidding um okay so um like i said they're a master of their craft and shoemaking the shoes are for themselves but they also make them for other fairies that's designed for their special needs. Irish folklore researcher William Butler Yeats found that leprechauns' names come from Librog, which means one shoemaker. Shoemaking was very lucrative trade in the day, so which is why I don't think it was supposed to be like made fun of. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and this also allowed the creature to be very wealthy. Ah, uh, see, okay, so it's an it's an excuse for how he amassed so much wealth. Exactly, and but even though he did have a lot of money, he hates spending it. Mm, and sounds like me. <laughs> but you don't have any. I don't money. have any money. I just hate to spend it. I'm poor. <laughs> My pennies. <laughs> <laughs> um, instead, they're very protective and obsessive, and to ensure that their treasure is safe, the leprechaun would hide it throughout Ireland. And that includes, like, the woods, the mountains, caves, basically any hiding spot that they can come across. Except they do carry a little purse full of gold coins that they always carry on their body. They can often be uh, wild-tempered, and when they get very mad, they tend to throw anything in their reach, even furniture. So this suggests that their strength is a lot bigger than their stature indicates. Sure. They also like to steal food and booze, so watch out for that. 
Now, here are some variations. Um, there are two more fairies in folklore that exhibit similar behavior and appearance. So people seem to think they are leprechauns, just different, just slightly different from sure, each other. Sure. So one of them is the clerican, and the other one is a fardarig. Experts who study the Celtic lore have come to the conclusion that these are they're, they are leprechauns, but they might just use different terms based oh, okay. on their behavior. So let me let me get into that. So so the Fardarig prefers to wear red garments and are obsessed with playing mean practical jokes. You know, like the whole it's just a prank bro kind of like mentality. <laughs> <laughs> now the Clarican is known for sneaking into cellars and stealing liquor and getting really drunk. Oh nice. So that's the one you really want to run into. That's the lily leprechaun. That's the lily leprechaun. <laughs> just call me Lilith. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna go into story time now. And let you know about a story that is pretty famous, written by Thomas Crofton uh, Croker, called Master and Man. And this one was written in 1825. Okay. And the story takes place in South of Ireland. There was a man named Billy who loved to drink and fight. One night, he was on his way home after a rowdy time at the pub. But the walk proved to be longer than he liked and wished loudly to himself, a drop of good liquor to keep a man's soul from freezing in him. After uttering these words, a little man in three-cornered hat, bound all about with gold lace and with great silver buckles in his shoe, held out a glass that was as big as him and said, Never wish it twice, Billy. Billy, of course, accepted the drink and chugged it all. As soon as he finished, the leprechaun demanded payment. Billy laughed and insulted the leprechaun. Unamused, the leprechaun shouted, You shall be my servant for seven years and a day. And that is a way I will be paid. He then told Billy that he had to meet him the next night in this exact spot and warned him that if he didn't, then his situation would be much, much worse. Hmm. I loved the response, never wish it twice. I feel like we need to start using that in modern times. <laughs> and bring this it was back. like, oh man, I wish I had some McDonald's. And like you bring it and you're like, never wish it twice. Never wish it twice. Except wish for something better than McDonald's. Come on. I mean, at this point, (laughs) if you're wishing, why would you wish this? (laughs) Okay. Uh, So it goes on that for whatever reason, this really freaked out Billy and agreed to the terms. Years passed and Billy served the leprechaun and did his biddings. Some of these orders included breaking and entering people's homes and retrieving items. Billy also helped the leprechaun to break into cellars of rich men and drink all the beer and wine their stomachs could hold. <laughs> that just seems like a perk of the job. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so this this is kind of what a lot of people expect when they come in contact with a leprechaun. Absolutely. But there is a way to switch it around on them. Okay. A human can turn the tables by capturing the leprechaun and hold him captive until they give up their treasure. However, the leprechaun will do anything to keep its gold and will attempt to entice the captor with another offer, like granting three wishes. Sure. This is, of course, a trick because if the person accepts the three wishes, the leprechaun will dress up the offer with riddles as a way to trick and confuse their captor, leading to their freedom. Okay. Now, once the leprechaun is free, the human loses out on all wishes and possibly getting the treasure. So you're just kind of screwing yourself. It's kind of like uh, the greed of man. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's sort of like a life lesson, but also to explain how humans actually can be sure. sometimes. Now, there's a story called The Little Shoe. And in this story, it tells a man who is actually able to capture the leprechaun. 
So after a day of hard work, a man began to head towards his stables to finish up the day. As he was approaching the door, he heard hammering and someone whistling the most beautiful tune he had ever heard. He knew it must have been a clerican and decided to capture the creature. He o- <laughs> He's like, this one's mine. Wow, that's so beautiful sounding. That ain't no human. That's got to be a creature. Yeah, uh, and it's got to be mine. <laughs> he opened the door slowly and peered carefully inside looking for the little fellow. He spotted him standing under a horse... And he saw that he was wearing a red nightcap and leather apron, all the while making a shoe. Enveloped in his work, the leprechaun never noticed the man approach from behind, and so he was able to be captured. Still holding the leprechaun with his bare hands, the man demanded all the gold in his purse. The leprechaun cried and agreed, but told him that he needed to loosen his grip so that he can get it for him. As soon as the man complied, the leprechaun was able to wiggle his way out and escape, all the while laughing and mocking the man for his foolishness. (laughs) (laughs) However, the leprechaun left the shoe he was working on behind. The man took the shoe and was enraptured by its beauty and then decided to keep it for the rest of his life. So it's kind of the... I always feel like we come off really bad in this, in these stories. (laughs) Absolutely. But I mean, that must be one hell of a shoe. Yeah. I mean, to be that obsessed with it, Mm -hmm. I'm just imagining Carrie from Sex and the City and like how she covets (laughs) shoes. I mean, usually in folklore, when you hear about a shoe, it's always Cinderella. But I would have thought this guy's just like, I don't need to be rich. I have one shoe. He's like, at least I have a shoe. Doesn't even have both of them. And I'm pretty sure it's small, so he can't wear it. What if he's a foot fetishist? Ew, this story got really weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So moving on. In Croker's book, he also mentioned that the Irish people also call these creatures pygmy people, indicating that these stories are based on real people of short stature. However, according to PBS, there's no archaeological evidence that these people had ever lived in the area. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, there's... Not a likelihood that this was true as far as, like, they were just calling smaller and people or whatever. And this is recent whatever. enough history that exactly. there should be archaeological evidence. We're not talking about someone 100,000 years And not ago. just, and I don't mean, like, evidence, like, physical bodies being buried, but I mean, even just um, tracking back historical, like, migrations and whatnot, that they're just, like, there isn't anything that we yeah. can find. Now, the earliest mention of the leprechaun was in the 7th or 8th century in a text called The Adventure of Fergus, Son of Letty. In the story, a king lays on the beach and falls asleep. When he wakes up, he realizes that he's being dragged into the ocean by three leprechauns. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> he's like, what the fuck? Uh, a struggle ensues, and the king manages to capture all three leprechauns. Begging to be released, they offer him three wishes in exchange. That's all I got from the story, and from what I understand, I think the king comes off good in this one. Like, I think he actually, since he's a he's a, he's a royal, he's more honorable and, like, just accepts the wishes rather than all the gold, which makes sense because he's a king and probably has a ton of gold himself anyway. And, okay, I have a couple thoughts. Okay. First off... Maybe he wasn't a king when this happened, and he got three wishes, Ooh. and now we all are like, that guy who was the king, because we know. <laughs> we just saw the new Spider-Man movie, so the idea of rewriting history and everything, it's very fresh it's in my very, mind. It's uh, very possible. Um, my other thought is, if I woke up and three creatures, I don't care if they're six inches tall or mm-hmm. three feet tall, are dragging me into the ocean, that's terrifying. That's so terrifying. Yeah. You're like, what did I do to you guys? <laughs> I would just think they're aliens. I'm like, no. Don't drag me, bro. Yeah. There's also the legend of the Fairbolg, who were the fourth group to settle into Ireland. 
They were a small race that fled Greece after being enslaved for 230 years. They became the new rulers of Ireland, but it only lasted 37 years because it wasn't until the Tua de Dana, a supernatural race, came to Earth after they were banished from heaven. The Tua de Dana possessed magical powers and great knowledge. They built great settlements underground, and they hid their extraordinary amount of treasure that only a handful of humans were able to see. These magical creatures, including the Farbog, are a blend of lore and history that people believe to be true up until the 17th century. A counter story of this history comes from the 5th century, which was created by uh, the Christian church. This religion was becoming more and more popular, and so history and the stories of these mythical creatures evolved into something evil. This is why a lot of the tales, the leprechaun is depicted as mischievous and even stealing babies to kill them or replacing them with fairy children, otherwise known as changelings. That makes sense because if you're trying to... Make someone else believe it, you don't want to get rid of... Christianity it, has a history of anti-paganism. Exactly. So, yeah, make all this stuff. Okay, this is so funny because so many things you're talking about relate to my story a little bit. Really? So this is, okay, anyway. Ooh, cute. But yeah, so I mentioned the changeling. One of these creatures and I plan on doing in the future, they're one of my favorite mythical creatures I have ever read about. I just... They're terrifying. They're so scary and they're so awesome. And I do want to do this in the future. So I'll talk about that eventually. Now, the leprechaun was more depicted as a creature from the dark underworld and sent to Earth to harm us. This is a very Christian interpretation, again, because of their belief of heaven and hell. So this makes a lot more sense. So let's talk about more of the evolution of the leprechaun. In 1772, when Irish soldiers were stationed in the U.S., they decided to celebrate the St. Patrick's Day, like... The actual just saint, not like, you know, what we know it as today. Oh, yeah. I mean, what we know today has nothing (laughs) to do with the actual holiday. Exactly. They were just trying to celebrate the saint. And this was their way of bringing a piece of home back to them because they were really homesick. And by many, because of this celebration, is considered to be the first St. Patrick's Day celebration. And it was on U.S. soil. From then on, it kind of just took off on its mind of its own and flourished into a yearly celebration. And like anything else, it was taking into consideration that this could be a money-making idea. (laughs) And this is one of the theories that the image of the leprechaun was just chosen to be this holiday's mascot. No other particular reason other than every holiday needs a mascot and the leprechaun seemed fine to them. You know, when I think about Santa and Christmas and I think about the Easter Bunny and Easter... I don't actually picture leprechauns when I think of St. Patty's Day. Right. And I also, I don't picture Uncle Sam when I think of the 4th of July. Yeah. (laughs) And when it comes to Halloween, I guess I see a jack-o'-lantern in my head. I don't know if there's like a specific uh, mascot for Halloween. I all Halloween imagery. Which is, yeah, there's all these types of like classic characters. But I mean, are there any other holidays that have obvious mascots? I mean, I mean, I, see, I don't think of Christmas with has Santa. Valentine's Day. But yeah, I, I think Christmas and Easter are pretty much the only ones that have But it's mascots. not necessarily like it has to be, yes, this is the mascot. But like, for example, Christmas, even though we don't believe in Santa Claus, mm-hmm. uh, there is like this kind of understanding that if we see a Santa Claus, we're not thrown off by it. Where it's it's a marketing ploy. We don't ha- it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. physically in our house, but it has to be like a response, like a memory of some okay. sort. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. Which actually, this this whole like evolution of the leprechaun really reminded me when I covered Krampus because it was basically its own folklore 
you know, with rich history and even interpretations. And then it wasn't until Christianity made him very evil, devil-like, and then somehow melded back into celebrating a saint, which is uh, Santa Claus. And now it's just kind of a jolly, jolly imagery. But yeah, so it, it's very interesting, but like, yeah, it's kind of... So you'd uh, say the holidays are bringing it back. The holidays are bringing it back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Doing what they can to, to improve that image. <laughs> so let's move forward to the 19th century and early 20th century. Now we start to see a rise in leprechaun popularity, including other Irish folktales. Now this is due to the mass Irish immigration to North America that occurred during the potato famine. So when I say it was popular, it doesn't mean that it was necessarily a good thing. Okay. Like any mass influx of immigration in most countries, there are also a massive backlash that resulted in the mistreatment of Irish immigrants. Sure. They were treated less than human and were literally seen as less than human by a lot of people. So their rich history, again, as a result, was mocked and turned into a stereotype. Basically, another tool to just make fun of them. The leprechaun was a popular figure to become, oh, to compare the Irish population as being greedy, hot-headed drunks, and did absolutely nothing to contribute to society, which is, of course, not true, but that's prejudice for you, I guess, you know. Yeah, it's awful. It's awful. Now, in the end, I guess you can say it kind of worked out, because even though it took a couple of generations, Americans these days with Irish ancestry kind of take a lot of pride in it. Again, the consumerism saw an opportunity and did what they could to being Irish cool again <laughs> kind of thing. There's tons of books and websites that gear towards people that are interested in learning about their Irish roots. And nowadays, a leprechaun is more of a fun character like we talked about earlier that is just jolly, has gold. And for us, he likes to drink. So yeah, I mean, that kind of just brings us to today. Like, how do we know... The leprechaun. How do you know them? Like, when you think of leprechaun, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, it's 100% Lucky Charms. Okay, that's the number one. And then number two, I think of uh, Warwick Davis as the monster in the leprechaun movie. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we leprechaun haven't seen that movie. in forever, and now I feel like we need to rewatch again. I mean, it's not good. Yeah. But maybe that's why I want to see it again. I think we should give it another shot. I haven't seen it since I was young, so. I saw it in college. Yeah. Like, I knew about the movie oh, when I was a kid. Oh, I saw that before. But I didn't see it until college, because I was like, <laughs> I'm finally going to see this movie. There used to have ads for the Leprechaun in my comic books, and I remember the ad actually looked pretty creepy. Yeah. Uh, well, I thought the design was pretty cool. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, as far as, like, the behavior, it was kind of silly. It was he like, was too goofy. He was too goofy. He was too goofy. Yeah. But yes, I would say Lucky Charms is the first thing that comes to mind, absolutely. And you know what? It is also one of my favorite cereals, so it yeah. gets a pass. It's, it's fine. It does get a pass, I guess. Uh, there's also the Boston Celtics, or Celtics, however you want to say it. People there call it the Celtics. That's what I thought, yeah. but I wasn't sure. I'm not really into sports, so, yeah. you know, here I am. Now, there's also something that a lot of people I saw, like, kind of come up when I talked about, like, modern leprechauns and what, what people think of. And another one is The Luck of the Irish, which is a movie, a Disney movie, that came out in 2001. It was as popular, I guess, as you can get for a straight-to-TV Disney movie mm -hmm. can get. But there's some hardcore fans that love it. Now, I'm not going to review, or I'm not going to read people's reviews of the movie, but I'm going to tell you a couple of the titles that I found that I, that I thought was really hilarious. So, first you got your negatives. It, <laughs> this guy said, Saints 
preserve us from this awful movie. (laughs) (laughs) And then another guy said, poor and a little bit offensive. (laughs) But as for the people that liked it, these were my favorite titles. The single most phenomenal movie I have ever had the pleasure to watch. And then the next one. I almost think that one is Mark. <laughs> I think it might have been trolling. <laughs> oh, my God. And then this one. This movie, Sham, rocked. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my story of the leprechaun. <laughs> well, the, well, there's also uh, leprechauns are the mascot for the fighting Irish the people who uh, the, the oh I mean the there's Notre tons Dame, the the college yeah yeah there there's tons of Irish um, now again like what I kind of mentioned resurfaced and and now it's like this huge pride thing now mm-hmm. I know the Notre Dame thing is like a lot older so you know that that's fine that's been Absolutely. around for a long time but um but yeah like being Irish is freaking cool so embrace it hell yeah <laughs> we need a remake with a more historical representation of leprechauns because they could be pretty creepy. I think they can be very creepy. And I think they're... Little, like, mischievous fairies that get drunk and play pranks and everything like that. Yeah. Or drag you into the ocean. Yeah. Could be pretty interesting. And And the... So here's the thing. At first I was like, well... You know, do they... Why do they always look like men? And I guess that is part of it, too. They're always male. And they always seem to maybe look a little older. And yeah, so I don't know, I couldn't really find a lot of information of where they came from because again, they're very secretive. So the idea is like like a lot of old mythological creatures, they kind of just come from the earth in yeah, a weird yeah. way or they're ancient as F. Well, so represent- we don't even know. Their representation could be like dwarves in Lord of the Rings where they're like, even the women have beards. Yeah. It could just be the idea that it's, <laughs> it's a species that looks like this, but they're not yeah. actually old and they're not all men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know. That's just the way they look. I'm still not convinced uh, Gimli is male. And 90% of the time, <laughs> how kidding. often how often do you see a dog and you're like, oh, I know that's a guy or a girl. Yeah. If you've never met the dog before. It's a lot harder. It's than hard. You think. I mean, you have your kind of like what possibly Disney movies put in your head. Like poodles are always girls and, and pit bulls are always boys, but that's so not the case, obviously. You know? Yeah, and I do realize I have been programmed. We've all been <laughs> a little programmed. Disney it's crazy. Movies to have these things. And I think I also have this default programming that I just assume all dogs are boys and all cats are girls, but I know right. they're not that way because yeah. I think I've actually known more male cats than I think I have female, too. but uh, yeah. I think it's a total Disney thing. They just <laughs> they just did that those. to me. But Disney, man, they they really shaped us here. Yeah, one so. of my one of my favorite movies as a kid was called Milo and Otis, about a dog and a mm-hmm. cat who were best friends, and the cat was no, maybe the cat was a boy. Yeah, maybe I don't know. Boys. I was thinking that the cat was a girl, but anyway, that was a cute movie. <laughs> So I was unrelated. So bringing it back. Believe it or not, my Guinness is non-alcoholic. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break because I need another one. And see you guys in a few. All right. So I have my Cabernet Sauvignon. And Chase has now his non-alcoholic Guinness. So I think we're prepared for Chase's awesome story. Which takes place pretty close to yours and at least in some oh. of the time frames and even deals with issues about christianity so <laughs> oh yeah, wow so it's it's i guess it was just that kind of week decently relevant 
So it turns out that 19th century England was quite the hotspot for paranormal activity. Mm -hmm. Either that or it was rife with paranoia and fear. (laughs) If you recall, I covered Spring Hill Jack in episode 65. He, or it, was a creature who allegedly attacked women in London during the mid-1800s. He had claws, a terrifying mask, could jump extraordinary heights, and could breathe blue flames from his mouth. Wow, that sounds like a tongue twister. Breathe... Wait, one more time. Breathe blue flames. Breathe blue. Breathe blue flames. So you just breathe (laughs) blue. That's hard to do. Oh, man. Why is that so hard? I don't know. I've never had that struggle before. (laughs) (laughs) So then, in episode 66, I discussed the devil's footprints, a phenomenon in southwestern England in which creepy devil footprints appeared one night in the snow over a distance of many, many miles, often appearing in impossible places. So today's story is going to be my third story from this period in the last few months. And it's all because the deep tunnel that is Wikipedia just keeps bringing me the good stuff. (laughs) This story actually holds more historical relevance than the last two, though, and might even come up in formal context. Once again, it also skirts the line of paranormal and true crime. Mm, Today, I'm going to discuss the Hammersmith Ghost. Okay, I don't know this one. Well, you might have heard some bits of it once we get later into the story. Okay. Maybe not, though. (laughs) Let's hope not, so it's even more exciting for you. Right. Now, this story takes place a little earlier than the other two. We have to go back to the beginning of the 19th century, all the way back to 1803, in the town of Hammersmith, which is a district in West London. So, starting in November, reports began to surface of various people witnessing a ghost. Some claimed only to have seen this ghost but others went so far as to claim that they had actually been attacked by it. Ooh. So where are they seeing this ghost? In Hammersmith. So, like, just in town? Like, just all around? The rumors were kind of all over the place, but near near a particular graveyard. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I know I just started this story, but I want to stop. <laughs> and let's talk, for, uh, let's talk for a second about this attacking ghost. Now, the concept of ghosts is complicated, Everyone has their own idea of a ghost, but even if you think about it, it might not be as defined as you think it is. But we have seen them represented in stories in many different ways. They are shown as something to be terrified of, sure. But how often have we seen them actually physically assaulting someone? Are we worried a ghost is going to punch us? (laughs) I mean, seriously, they got attacked. Are you? I think. How often when you see a ghost, you're like, oh man, he's going to freaking attack me. So I think it's interesting. I think you're right. So I. Okay, when people are like, I don't want to go to my house, it's really scary. And it absolutely is, especially when they start breaking your shit. You're like, well, that's just fucking rude. But when feeling an actual threat, that's when it gets interesting because what can a ghost do? And and I don't know if any of us have, well, I'm sure some people have, but I don't know if I had really thought about it too in depth. Now, I do know one of your favorite movies is Ghost. <laughs> which stars it's an it's an 80s or it's either late 80s early 90s freaking love that movie so it stars patrick swayze Whoopi goldberg and a terrible haircut attached to me more right <laughs> and in that movie he learns from another ghost how he can kind of physically interact with things but only to a certain extent he can't right. like walk over and pick up a phone or anything but he can like move things with like he can, like shove or or he can he can pick up things, hard. but it takes a lot of concentration. Yeah, it's it's a very difficult thing. Yeah, and but it's still very Hollywood in general. I think we usually see ghosts. They could turn a light off 
or maybe even break a light or mm-hmm. make a picture fall off the wall. The kinds of things where if it happens, you could – the kinds of things it could do feel like the kinds of things that if it happened and there wasn't a ghost, you might be able to rationale that, oh, the – picture fell because the hook was kind of loose or right. the light turned off or broke because it was just a crappy light and it was bad timing. That's the kind of stuff I usually think a ghost can well, it do. It just le- leaves just enough to think maybe it's something else. You exactly. know, like it, it's so subtle, but still eerie enough where you're like, this isn't normal, we, but yeah. it could be this. It could be just a weird situation. Which is also why it's so easy for, if, if you don't believe in ghosts, to be able to go, hey... It, there's a rational explanation here. Right. Usually when you see someone levitating or weird stuff happening, we consider that demonic stuff. Right, that, that totally. And, and, and I think that's, that's what people ghosts. are more afraid of. So when you have a ghost in your house, you're like, please don't be a demon. Exactly. So that's kind of where it comes from. You're like, just don't get any worse and we're good. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to take a stop moment because we just heard that people have been attacked by a ghost. Yeah. That assumes... Some sort of physical that's a, contact. That's a crazy ghost, if yeah. that's if it's a ghost. So it kind of sounds like they're saying they were mugged by a ghost, which is a little <laughs> bit weird. So we can go back to the story now that we've talked about how this is already sounding a little weird. Mm-hmm. The mysterious ghost that had been spotted around Hammersmith was described as being tall and possibly wearing a white jacket or cloak. Some reports even claimed to have seen horns, but that definitely seems mm. to be just a couple. And I'm like... That's someone who just wants to be me, too. I'm yeah. just saying that. Just saying it. <laughs> well, in that case, it's not a ghost. But anyway. It's such uh, an know. atypical ghost yeah. feature to say horns. I'm like, there was just one person like, I saw a ghost and it had horns and a tail and it talked to me in a weird language. No. I was like, we need to revisit didn't. the definition of a ghost here, lady. It's like, stop drinking. Yeah. <laughs> stop drinking leprechaun. Now, this ghost often manifested as soon as the church clock struck 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. So it's a late night ghost, which is good, but it's before, you know, the, the three o'clock or whatever it is. It's not it is, at midnight and it's not at three, so we're kind of, like yeah. One specific incident of the ghost attacking was described by a servant named Thomas Groom. Quote, I was going through the churchyard between eight and nine o'clock with my jacket under my arm and my hands in my pocket. When some person came from behind a tombstone, which there are four square in the yard behind me, and caught me fast by the throat with both hands and held me fast. My fellow servant, who was going on before, heard me scuffling, asked what was the matter. Then, whatever it was, gave me a twist around, and I saw nothing. Hmm. I gave a bit of a push out with my fist and felt something soft like a great coat. Oh, that's cool. As the report of these ghost sightings and attacks began to pile up, people began to suspect that this ghost was the result of a suicide victim who had been buried in the nearby St. Paul's churchyard. In Christianity, suicide is a very tricky subject. So not to turn this into a religious history class at all, we can just say that in an attempt to stop a lot of various behaviors involving suicide, Mm -hmm. suicide was deemed a secular crime in the 6th century. It was not in original Christianity. They, right, because they, they, they were promising all these amazing things to get to heaven, and people were living in such squalor that they were like, well, screw this life. Clearly, there's a better one waiting for me. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, the suicide rates came up. Now, that's not to say that people weren't just suicidal because they were living in shit, and they're like, fuck it anyway. I don't care if we don't well, come back. There were a whole lot of reasons people were yeah. committing suicide. There was also this forced martyrdom where they would 
attack someone on the street in the hopes that they would be killed so that they could become martyrs. And so right. There was a lot of behavior in early Christianity that meant suicide rates were high. And it's really hard for religion to grow if your people keep killing themselves. <laughs> so anyway, around the 6th century, it was deemed a secular crime. And in 1533, it was declared that all suicides would not be allowed a Christian burial. Mm. Now, modern views on suicide are a much more complex issue. It's definitely been something in the last, like, 50 years that is talked about and discussed from a religious context very differently. But the reason I brought that up is you need to know where people's minds were here in the early 1800s in England. Yeah. This is a Protestant country. Suicide is a very much a taboo thing here. So for them to think that this ghost belonged to a suicide not only suggests that this ghost is a very... It's a bad thing. It confirmed why it would be bad. Yeah. It's just, you know, the unrest soul. Exactly. So people are, it's just another reason that people are going to get more upset about it. Mm -hmm. And the fact that this man committed suicide and was buried on church ground has been seen as a very bad thing. His soul was troubled and they think that maybe people being attacked, it's just, you know, all a result of this slight. Now, it wasn't long before these stories began to become more serious. A story whose validity cannot be verified but is repeated regularly claimed that a pregnant woman was walking through the churchyard one night. The ghostly figure rose up from behind a tombstone and grabbed her, leading her to faint. Hmm. Nearby neighbors found her and brought her to her home. But later that night, she allegedly passed away from fright. Oh. Now, you don't often hear people being scared to death nowadays. Right. But back in yonder times, <laughs> apparently this was a very common thing. You're like, what could kill you? A lot of things. You know, yeah. you could die in childbirth. You could die if you eat the wrong food. You could be scared to death. You could have had literally an aneurysm. Fright. Yeah. Fright. Exactly. And then there was another report that claimed the ghost appeared near a wagon coach and it terrified the driver of said wagon Mm. so much that he actually jumped off the carriage and fled (laughs) on foot never to return, abandoning 16 people who were within the carriage. Oh, man. There's a bunch of horses and all these people and he was so scared he just ran. So did these people see anything or they were like, what the hell, dude? You know, I don't know if we know any of that information. Well, they didn't run away scared. But okay. that because I think they're in the carriage and they were probably, you know, it's kind of like an Uber ride going to the bars. Sure. Everyone's just like hanging out and talking. It's like a limo the, party and you're like, damn. But the driver's out cold on top <laughs> and he's just scared. He runs away. He's like, oh, they're rich. They can die. Yeah, right. <laughs> As was the case with spring Jack, many people began to patrol the streets in an effort to find this mysterious ghost attacker. On December 29th, a night watchman named William Girdler, maybe it's Girdler, Girdler, claims to have given chase to the alleged ghost, but the ghost ditched its white coat, allowing it to evade capture in the darkness of the night. That right there mm. sets off a bell. Yeah. Maybe it's not a ghost. <laughs> maybe Because people... ghosts usually can't just be like, oh, peace, I, I got rid of my coat and I disappear. Yeah. It's not really the way we see most ghosts. It, and it all came to a fever pitch on the night of January 3rd, 1804. Thomas Millwood was a bricklayer who lived in Hammersmith. In England, during this time, bricklayers wore a recognizable outfit, which was described as, quote, linen trousers entirely white, washed very clean, a Hmm. waistcoat of flannel, white, apparently new, and an apron which he wore around him, end quote. Weird. On this night, Millwood's outfit had been recently cleaned, and up to this point, Millwood had allegedly been mistaken for the ghost twice. <laughs> like, 
He's wearing so much white clothes, and I bet he was a pale guy. Oh, man. And if he had white hair, that's just icing on the cake. Yeah. So, allegedly, Millwood's family had urged him to put on a coat when traveling around town to avoid the issue going forward. It's not a phase, Mom. (laughs) This advice was promptly ignored. He was wearing just the clothes of his trade. Maybe he liked the attention. Maybe he's weird. Or maybe he's just like, people have to get over it or whatnot. He's like, why? How many people do we know? They're like, I'm not going to inconvenience myself because of other people. Like, that's a lot of people. I don't know, man. Wearing white is pretty inconvenient. So I think he's just, (laughs) you know, setting himself up here. So anyway, his parents and his family is like, you should wear a coat so people don't have this issue. He ignored that. He's like, it's fine, Ma. It's fine. (laughs) The Boston accent. Around 11 p.m. on the night of January 3rd, Millwood was returning home from a visit to his parents' house on Black Lion Lane. Around the same time and in the same vicinity, a Francis Smith, a 29-year-old tax officer, was patrolling the streets in an effort to find the Hammersmith ghost. Only unlike many others on the street, he was armed with a shotgun. Oh, damn. As soon as Smith saw Millwood, he shouted, (gasps) quote, Damn you, who are you, and what are you? Damn you, I will shoot you, end quote, which was immediately followed by a shot. By the shots. The blast hit Smith in his lower left jaw and pierced his spine, killing him. Oh, shit. He died. Oh, my God. Poor guy. I mean, but yeah, poor guy. Yeah, poor guy, right? I mean, he wanted to dress how he wanted to. That does not warrant death. But at the same time... He wasn't keeping it safe, just the same reason why I wouldn't go walking around Central by myself. No, absolutely. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you, you, you learn some things. Yeah, both these people were doing something less Uncool. than advisable. Yeah. Smith was arrested and tried for the murder of Millwood. This led to a very compelling case in the British legal system. Smith claimed that he truly believed Millwood was a ghost and that he was acting in self-defense by shooting him. Mm. However, the counter-argument was that at no point was Smith being attacked by Millwood and therefore could not have acted in self-defense. And his belief that Millwood was a ghost was irrelevant and that even if Millwood had been acting as a ghost would not have been a severe crime at the time, possibly just a misdemeanor of mischief. But see, the thing is, like, even if he was a ghost and then he shot at something, I think that's just someone who is unhinged and shouldn't have, it shouldn't have done that anyway. Because, like, what if there was someone nearby and he missed? Then he's endangering the public is what's happening. (laughs) And I don't approve. (laughs) It should be noted that there was a tremendous amount of public sympathy for Smith. This is likely due to the panic the public had developed over the belief in the Hammersmith ghost. And many of them felt like that this guy was out there trying to protect them. And that it was an honest mistake. The jury also seemed to be lenient on Smith. Oh, no. But the judge was far more critical. The initial verdict from the jury was manslaughter. But the judge demanded that they hand down either a guilty or innocent verdict. He also claimed that he would bring whatever the verdict was to the Crown for review. What doesn't happen in the American legal system. No, I mean, not that I'm aware of. (laughs) Smith was found guilty of murder. And then his sentence was passed up and brought up to the king where his original sentence of death and dissection, which was apparently common for murder, was commuted to one year of hard labor. Hmm. One source said a year of imprisonment instead. However, those might be the same thing. I'm not sure how this works in 1800. Maybe a year of hard labor meant imprisonment while working, like doing hard labor there, or you could live at home and do hard labor. I don't know how that works. I honestly didn't even look that deep into it. Eh, I just figured. I, I get it. Yeah. But this led to a lot of contention as to what constitutes reasonable self-defense. 
It also brought forth questions as to if a defendant believed he was in danger or was thwarting a crime that negate any crime that he may have committed unintentionally. The issue would finally reach clarification in 1983 with the case of R.V. Williams when the judge ruling stated, quote, In a case of self-defense where self-defense or the prevention of a crime is concerned, if the jury came to the conclusion that the, that the defendant believed or may have believed that he was being attacked or that a crime was being committed and that force was necessary to protect himself or to prevent that crime, then the prosecution have not proved their case. Okay. If, however, the defendant alleged belief was mistaken, and if the mistake was an unreasonable one, that may be a peaceful reason for coming to the conclusion that the belief was not honestly held and should be rejected. Even if the jury came to that conclusion that the mistake was an unreasonable one, if the defendant may genuinely have been laboring under it, he is entitled to rely upon it, end quote. So essentially they said mm -hmm. if he actually thought it was a ghost now and he was in danger, he might have been able to get off scot-free. But they could also prove that he wasn't being attacked by this guy, whether or not he believed it was a ghost. Yeah, that's kind of the problem that I find here is that no one, no one said that, like, you have to know what a ghost is to shoot one but what was his perception of a ghost like he would did he get like a you know was he ever attacked by a ghost before exactly knew what a ghost was and knew exactly how to get there no he's not a hunter you know what i mean like mm -hmm. when someone goes out hunting and they see a deer they're like i'm pretty fucking sure that's a deer but when you see a ghost that you think is a ghost that's so i don't know very very different to even each human being and i so, think so so the case that happened in the 80s wasn't about a ghost but i think if you tried to make a court case saying i thought he was a real ghost you would have to prove to some level of believability that ghosts did exist for that to actually that's what be i was gonna say you have to like thing. prove why you believe in ghosts like do they exist and and what was your mindset exactly. before the crime did you because if someone's like he always said how he never believed in ghosts then i think you're a murderer yeah you and, know and the way people would have felt about this in 1803 is very different than they would now. There's mm -hmm. a, the public mindset that this is one of those things that's just very interesting. But yeah, we had a self-defense case and the guy's like, I thought I was shooting a ghost. Right. And it's just a very <laughs> weird thing. But it was it was a real legal issue. This that, is like how some laws are made where you're like, I didn't even know that was a law because it only happened once. <laughs> there was this one crazy situation and we had to like address it i mean can you imagine sitting in a courtroom where there's a self-defense case i mean you'd obviously be an english courtroom mm -hmm. at this point and you would actually have the lawyer bring up how in the 1800s <laughs> a guy thought he was shooting a right. ghost and you're just like wow this is really happening and i want that lawyer to defend me in the future because <laughs> damn <laughs> so but what about the alleged real ghost that was haunting hammersmith although it would be easy to assume that it was fear and paranoia driving a superstitious group of people there's a possible explanation for what makes this whole ordeal even more tragic. Oh, no. Shortly after the death or murder of Thomas Millwood, the story took an unexpected turn. John Graham was a cobbler in the area. Ooh, cobbler, like the leprechauns from the story. <laughs> he claimed that many of the apprentices that worked under him had been scaring his children by telling them outlandish stories of ghosts and other terrifying things. Hmm. In an effort to teach the apprentices a lesson, he wrapped himself in a white tablecloth and attempted to scare them, apparently something he repeated over several nights in the area. Oh, shoot. Okay. 
Although I would personally venture to guess that this story about scaring his apprentices as a way of teaching them a lesson was possibly a fabrication. I think it is very possible that Graham was scared of the backlash from his admission, so he attempted to make it sound less sinister, like he had noble intentions. But he, but he might have actually just been going out there like he a crazy might have just person. been a prick, gone yeah. out to scare people for shits and just, giggles. Just a prank, One a.m. when you have a job and kids. Yeah, that's. I mean, I don't know how it was in 1803, but that's a hard thing to do now. Just he, saying. He's starting to sound like a Ferdarig right now. So there's a good chance that after those happened, he you know thought about thought about and tried to create some sort of story to make it seem like I didn't mean to. Right. Despite his admission of guilt, many Londoners' minds were set on believing that there was, in fact, a real ghost in Hammersmith. And decades later, the ghost would allegedly reappear. Some even claimed that the first sightings of Springheel Jack may have been the Hammersmith ghost, bringing it full circle oh, to that original story. Nice. Especially since the later reports of the Hammersmith ghost also claimed he could now breathe fire. Just like Springfield oh, yes. Jack did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And although this story started with what turned out to be a fake ghost story, there might be a possible real ghost story that has emerged afterwards. Dun dun dun! <laughs> because you see, Millwood, the innocent victim of mass hysteria, now allegedly haunts the area. Oh my god! The Black Lion. I love it. The Black Lion Inn is a pub where Millwood's body was taken after he was shot and either died there or was dead already. Mm-hmm. According to the landlord, many landlords over time, as well as many of the employees since then, a lot of strange things often happen at this pub. Oh, that's so cool. And although I can't find any specifics, locals claim that the ghost of Millwood haunts that pub, and every 50 years he would travel to the churchyard nearby. He allegedly lasted it in 1955, and a group went to go see it if it happened, I think, in, like, 2004, 2005. Okay. So, he, I think he did it again in 2005. Like, the ghost apparently, like, traveled to go see the the churchyard where uh, he would have been shot. So, 2055, people. Keep an eye out. It'll be be 2060, because it would have been 2005, every 50 years. So, 1955, 2005... 20 oh you're right I'm i was stupid. like wait what i said 55 years later man i'm bad at math oh my god i was like wow i had way too much wine apparently i have no, no idea what i'm doing i was being stupid i kept thinking 55 years but yes it was 50 yeah no i get what you're saying so that's my story yay oh my god that was amazing so uh, i want to hear more about this ghost like what he does so is he the just new ghost, the, 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 the Thomas Millwood. Millwood. Yeah. The Millwood ghost. Yeah. Now, I did try to find stuff, and that's a little harder, but I totally think this is one of those things that the next time we're in the area, if we get back up to the London area, we could go to Hammersmith, we can go to this pub. And oh, we can, hell yeah. Hell yeah, yeah, and apparently at this pub, they have a plaque that talks about how Millwood was shot because of the right. ghost and everything. It's like known history there. It's like the history of that pub, yeah. which I think is really neat. Yeah, that's... I definitely want to go there. So... Before we go for this week, uh, last week, Lily discussed the curse of King Tutankhamun's tomb, and in it, I mentioned a documentary I had seen. For those of you that were interested in seeing it, it is called King Tut Forgotten Treasure. It was released in 2019, and you can watch it now for free on IMDb TV streaming. So I think, I don't even know if you have to create a membership. I think you just, I mean, uh, an account. I think you can just watch it. stream it. Yeah. Yeah. Its focus is on the actual artifacts found within the tomb, not necessarily on 
King Tut himself. And the most fascinating portion of it has to do with the theory that many of the artifacts may have been repurposed in a hurry due to circumstances around King Tut's mm-hmm. death. So it's worth your time if you are into Egyptian history, so you should watch it. And maybe I can get you to watch it tonight. I would love to watch it tonight and kind of want to watch Leprechaun now. So we'll see We'll see what kind of weird do marathon. one-two punch. Yeah, let's do it. So I think that brings our episode to a close for this week. Thank you guys for joining us. And if you have any comments, questions, or personal scary stories you want to share, drop us a line at hotwpodcast at gmail.com. We post episodes every week. And cheers if you were drinking along with us. And for those of you that are listening to us who had too much to drink last night, don't worry. Because the best cure for a hangover is fear. Bye. Bye.